You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Casey Armstrong here, episode 17. We have our first repeat guest with Paul Howdegi of BK Beauty. I can see how he prioritizes or maybe has us in his life hierarchy for Kirsten. He was dressed up, nice buttoned <laughs> up uh, for me and for Nick. He's got the t-shirt on and the backwards hat. So there's that. Well, um, I, w- I will. I will add just real quick that I've only received two haircuts all year long, and so I'm, I'm just hi- hiding this big old uh, flop top underneath. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been really diligent. So before we jump into everything, I know Nick had a couple of questions and some announcements. So Nick, we'll uh, toss it over to you. So we have a, I have a survey I put together. I promise it's like three or four questions. We're just kind of getting a pulse of what we should be covering in the next, you know, thirty to sixty, ninety days. You know, whatever, any kind of topics, anything from advertising, customer service, et cetera. Also, we want to know what type of speakers we should bring on. Paul is a two-time speaker, so we want to try to switch things up in the next, you know, 60 days. Who should we bring on? Different brands. I don't know, influencers in the space, anyone that you follow on Twitter, anything like that. Just let me know. And then last thing, we're thinking about building a community here at ShipBob, like a forum for e-commerce entrepreneurs, kind of like this, but transitioning into something a little more established, not that this isn't. So just let us know if that's something you'd be interested in. We're going to just kind of dive into what that's going to look like in the coming months. And last but not least, I promise this is the last link. This is like the only time we've actually ever put links in here that are ShipBob like upcoming stuff. But we also have a webinar next week with Casey and also our uh, head of product, Kevin. We're going to be kind of talking about the new app marketplace launch. Uh, so we have just put together this entire app marketplace over the past year all these new integrations, pretty much plug and play system with ShipBob now. And so we're going to kind of go through essentially why we built it out, what types of integrations we built and kind of the division of what that's going to look like for beyond 2020 and 2021. Gather your feedback, which ones we should be you know, prioritizing for next year. So you want to attend that. It's going to be kind of a session just like this. So two links, that's all I got. And I'll kind of kick it back over to you guys. Yeah. And in the questionnaire that Nick sent, feel free to write in whatever, even anything on like integrations. We're building a lot of these integrations, but we have partners building into us. I loved it. The other day, uh, the CEO of Loop, which is one of the leading returns platforms, he emailed us and he goes, hey, we're, we built into you and we've got a customer live. And I'm like, <laughs> cool news to me. But you know, it was it's great to see a lot of the, the, the partners taking initiative here and building into us and vice versa. And so you know, we want to know what are your guys' needs today and what are your needs in 2021 and beyond so we can get ahead of the curve. So I see some people throwing in where they're calling in from. So you all know the drill. Only one person so far from out of the U.S. So let's see. Where, where's everybody calling in from? Mm-hmm. I got to let everyone know I'm, I'm on the Cape. So I got to let everyone know like that usual. So <laughs> I'm in SoCal. We've got Canada. You want to tell everybody where you are, Paul? Austin, Texas. I see another one. Jono, Austin, Texas there. Nice. New York, Montreal, Medellin. Um, I've actually been there. Spent a couple of weeks there. That's a, a rather enjoyable city down in Columbia. We got South Carolina, some more Europe, Nashville, another great city, Vale. I've somehow never been. An Australian in Austin. Awesome. Jono, Denver, LA, LA. Perfect. So let's jump in here. As always, drop in a bunch of questions. Let's see. Uh, bring whatever you want for Paul. He's been, he's been great just really opening up you know, the status of BK. I think they're on the precipice of of a million dollars in, in in 12 months, which is just mind-blowing, especially for the way that they've approached their their go-to-market strategy. You know, they're not spending money on Facebook or elsewhere is not a bad thing, but it's easy to make a million dollars when you spend a million dollars on Facebook and they've gone in the completely opposite direction. And so I think it's just such an inspiring story, both on how from from how Lisa started her YouTube channel to then how she and Paul evolved this into this e-commerce store that they have today. And, and it's just exciting to hear, you know, where he wants to take this in the future. And, and I just love talking to entrepreneurs that just think so big and also um, long-term as well. So to jump in here, Paul, I know you and I were chatting about a couple of things in advance, something that a lot of people struggle with, especially with getting started is, is manufacturing. 
and actually getting the product. And I think, um, you know, I was fortunate to see to, or to watch more closely than other merchants, like how, how you guys got started and, and the patience and the diligence you put in advance. But so if you can just share a little bit, cause you went from, you know, I know you've done a lot of marketing at a large scale before, but you went from, you know, quote unquote, e-commerce novice to now, you know, being the co-founder of a, you know, million dollar plus store. But you learn, so you learn so much in that first day, that first week, that first month, that first year. So can we talk me a little bit through on that manufacturing process? Yeah, totally. And to provide some context going into the conversation, my background, the last decade I spent in cybersecurity in the B2B space. And so this is completely new territory for me. And we're coming up on celebrating, as you mentioned, our one year anniversary in about 10 days from launching our online store on Shopify. But the work really started nine, 12 months before that. And so at the end of 2018, just to provide perspective in terms of our journey, actually, uh, you know, in the last session with Kirsten, Casey mentioned that that we knew each other on a personal level. His son and, and my daughter were in uh, preschool together. And it was one of these moments where, you know, we just crossed paths and it was a random encounter. And he said it, he was in marketing. I was in marketing. We were at a kid's birthday party. And then we just kind of hit it off. And I started getting really curious about, you know, the e-commerce space just by talking with Casey and a few other folks. I pretty much, you know, got the bug pretty quickly. It was kind of a similar bug that I got over 10 years ago in the cybersecurity space, a place that I knew nothing about either. My background is in marketing and, and business. And so much like cybersecurity, I threw myself into the deep end and similar scenario 10 years later with the physical products, starting with my wife, uh, working with her. She's the one with the background, uh, you know, 15 plus years in makeup and cosmetics. She was a former Mac cosmetics uh, regional trainer. And so she'd travel around training all these folks, artists about uh, product, customer service, and so on. And as Casey mentioned, she started her YouTube channel six years ago, uh, kind of an extension of her passion from that. And, you know, our, our chance meeting with Casey and a few other dots that were starting to connect, we took the risk and just saw an opportunity that was put before us. We had, I think I remember, Casey, you put it this way, was you, you've done the hard part already, right? You've laid in the foundation, grown an audience, demonstrated a level of consistency and authenticity. And, you know, you've done the hard part, introducing a brand and product to that captive audience. That's often the easy part. and. I did find that that it was the easy part. And so our story coming into it at the end of 2018 was really when we started our, our journey to, to try and figure out how all this stuff worked. And really, it just started with Google, trying to figure out how you source products, how you develop products. There's so many options out there. It's hard to make sense of it. And we had conversations with a number of contract manufacturers from big scale to small scale and everyone in between. And finally, we we found ourselves connected with a manufacturer that we chose to go with uh, out of the gate for our first sets of products, which were cosmetic makeup brushes. And, and where, uh, we, where were they based? So the design consultants, the team basically is based out of New Jersey, but our, our products are, are designed in the US, but they're assembled and manufactured in Asia, in China. And so they they basically guided us through the process to it was a nine to 12 month product development process. Uh, and some of the things I learned along the way were, you know, after nine to 12 months, you know, they were working with us and really hadn't charged us any money. And so from just managing kind of the startup and selling yourself upfront to a, a partner, like a contract manufacturer, at least for us, it was a huge benefit to start that developing that relationship out of the gate with uh you really got to sell yourself that's what i found like you got to sell yourself they have to believe in you and if you're able to do that effectively they will ride through the product development with you they helped guide us through the entire process and even financed our initial production run for our, our first batch of, of inventory that we took possession of uh, about a year ago yeah i actually want to go on something there real quick so Something you mentioned for yourself was, you know, you caught the bug. And then what you mentioned about Lisa was it was a passion project. And so I think that's one of the best parts about working with entrepreneurs is it's just their their desire to succeed and, and, and go so deep into the space. But then translating that into, 
you know, the story that you're telling your partners, especially early on. And I know Sam, one of the first people we had in the operator series early on, he was talking about that with both his manufacturer uh, and then a handful of other partners was, it was just him and, a, and his co-founder getting started and they were in their early twenties. They really had no, they had no experience before, but it was their passion and their story and, and the, the picture that they painted on the future state of the business that helped them get favorable terms Right. And, and set themselves up for success, especially from a cash flow perspective early on. And so if, if there's anything you can, you can share there, just also, because I know that's some stuff I want to get into in a little bit, but just what kind of terms were you seeing early on? How were you able to potentially negotiate to get those extended? Because even an extra 15 days can make a world of difference because then you can sell that much more. And then how were you able to use that as kind of like as a baseline moving forward? So over the last 12 months, and actually leading up to our launch as well, so so about two years, we've had the opportunity to engage and work pretty closely with three contract manufacturers. The first one that we started engaging with, I think it was just the right time, right place, right story that we were bringing in terms of how we were selling ourselves. Because you know there really wasn't that much negotiation out of the gate with the, the first supplier that we started conversations with. I think they they just recognize the opportunity of engaging with with smaller folks, right? And so we found that their their MOQs were very attainable for us. There was other suppliers who we were looking at that we really wanted to work with, but there was just too much of a hurdle in terms of their minimum order quantities to kind of get into the gate. Obviously, financing everything up front prior to production was was something we were also facing. But this other supplier, we just we we just found a connection. They I think they be- believed in us at the time, and they they were basically uh, you know with us through the entire product development, funding that with with their time and resources, and then also providing us financing in terms of vendor credit on uh, net thirty terms, and so. Our initial supplier, we we basically we took uh, possession of the inventory along with a bill after after working with them for twelve months, and we had thirty days to pay for that inventory. But you and know, that's at our, thirty days after you placed the order, or thirty days after you received the order, after we see, received the actual physical final production run. Mm, okay, and so nothing nothing was due. There was no bill. So basically, you know, we went through the product development took about nine months. And then we issued a PO to basically start the manufacturing process, at which point the credit terms that we had was basically, once we take possession, that's when we're going to receive a bill. And at that point, you know, that bill is due within 30 days. And so that really helped us from a cash flow perspective just to get out of the gate. And so we were already selling through our inventory by the time that we had to pay that first bill. And that that's not the case with the other two suppliers. And so there's kind of two other unique cases that we had experience with. So that first one just, it, again, it, it was right time, right place, right story that we just connected and it worked out phenomenally well from a cash flow perspective and just getting getting our, our, our ramp up going. The second supplier that we so worked real, real with. Real quick, um, yep. if we can jump in. Yeah, let's talk about the others because not everything goes <laughs> smoothly. And I'm sure you have different experiences with the others. From the MOQ or the minimum order quantity, so I guess I have two questions. On the MOQ side, did you have to negotiate the minimum down? And so you viewed their MOQ as kind of like um, a suggestion? I don't recall us having to really negotiate down. They were super accommodating. For us, we had no idea what the demand was going to be. One of the biggest challenges is trying to like figure out how much inventory you're going to take on and what what the demand you're going to how quickly are you going to sell through that inventory? And so for us, we wanted to be relatively conservative. And so the lower, the better, basically, in, in our case. For us, we launched with, again, just makeup brushes. But at launch, we brought out, it was nine brushes, nine unique brushes. And we the MOQs for each unique SKU there was, was 1,000, I think, our initial run. And so... It just worked out perfectly for us. We sold through pretty quickly, and you know we were we were on the phone with them, or basically shooting off an email, being like, "Hey, you know things are going great. We need to get another production, uh, another PO uh, issued." And then started to understand the demand, and then just kind of step up the the order quantity uh, from there. So from a PO or purchase order until actually receiving the inventory in your hand, I know that things have been interesting over the last. Four to six months, but what has that time frame typically been for you guys? 
Yeah. So initially before COVID, and it really hasn't changed too, too much, just based on when we've placed our production orders. The initial one was kind of in a normal state of the world. And uh, for us, it took about six weeks to finish production. We air freighted freighted it over. So it was relatively quick to, to get it to us, maybe add another 10 days to that. And so about two months in total to get it. Our prior to COVID hitting, we were able to basically get a large production run going and finalized before Chinese New Year. And that just coincided timing-wise pretty well given COVID hit just thereafter. And so we were we were good with inventory for you know a good two months while China was pretty much shutting down. How, how are you prepping for so much unknown in regards to demand from the collaborations you're working on to Black Friday, Cyber Monday? and the peak season and potential stimulus or no stimulus. It's just, I feel like from a forecasting perspective, it's just, it, it can go in so many different, the, the, the variance is insane. So how are you guys approaching that? Again, out of the gate, we never, it, it's always trying to place a bet, right? For us, it, it, it's been that way since the inception. I think now we have more information. So it's a more informed bet that we're making. And so each, each time those bets on how much inventory to receive it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Fortunately for us, you know, the trajectory is is continuing in kind of a, a positive state. And so every time it it comes time to, to place another PO to get uh, additional inventory, we just got to reassess current state, where things are at within the market in general, where things are at with our perceived demand from kind of, you know, where we're selling into. And then again, just placing an uninformed an bet. It's interesting you use the word bet because I think about it that way as well. And it's just like, how can you simplify it? And if you buy too little, what are the pros and cons? And if you buy too much, what are the pros and cons? And and it's right. it's it's de- independent for every single brand because you have different contractual terms with your manufacturers and everybody else. Um, you know the demand you can drive. And you also know the cash outlay that you're comfortable with. To get back to a question that I wanted to ask prior about, you know, the initial manufacturer and Ethan asked a similar thing, which is, so from Ethan is, how'd you get your manufacturer to finance the first round? Was this an equity play? And I don't know if they financed the first round. I think it was more of they gave you leeway and then net 30 terms. And so was that something that you had to negotiate or was it, was that actually part of their just default contract? I'm pretty sure. I, I remember it was just kind of the default way they wanted to play it. I think going into any relationship, and we can get into the other suppliers that we have experience with, but uh, that initial one, I, I just think we sold ourselves really well out of the gate, and they were basically wanted us more than we wanted them. Mm-hmm. Is maybe kind of a way to look at it, or is mutual, right? It, it was mutual. It was just such a good fit because from the supplier standpoint, they don't know you, right? It's a risk mm-hmm. to them. Not only are they putting up their time and resources from kind of providing you credit and essentially floating uh, the bill for you until you know after you received all the product and and beyond, but during product development, you are taking up some of their production cycles. There's an opportunity cost, so mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the hard and soft cost that it's costing them to engage with you through product development and beyond, but there is truly an opportunity cost, and so I'm not sure if. If we found that first partner at a point where they were just open to receiving a new relationship and they they saw that that they believed in us and so they wanted to really put everything up, but we didn't we didn't receive any any barriers that we had to address and kind of negotiate around, at nice. least with that first uh, experience. That's helpful. And I'm glad you call it opportunity cost as well, because that's, you know, from even from top of funnel and driving traffic, it's the time you spent, obviously, in one channel could be spent maybe optimizing or growing another. So it's always something to think about. And that brings me to another question by Joseph. By the way, it's funny to see the trends here in the questions. So we've got John, Jonathan, another John, we have Jono, we have Joseph, and we have Jay. So we've got a lot of Jays in the crew uh, today. Uh, from Joseph, can you, because uh, I, I love this topic here, pricing. So can you share some of your tips or lessons learned on pricing your product? Yep. You know, he says we want to find a sweet spot for our launch. I know that's something that you and I had a lot of dialogue on yeah. and would love to just know how you guys ultimately decided on this is how we're going to price. It's a great question. And it's an incredibly important topic too. It's one that I, I spent a lot of time thinking about and we've developed somewhat of a formula and it's very formulaic. And it actually maps back to working with our 
manufacturers and at least trying to anticipate what our target cost of production is or should be based on, you know, our projected, like where we want it to fall in terms of like the retail price. So we always start with retail price uh, and in mind. And so we're basically, I, I look to my wife, Lisa, she's the product expert, right? She understands the market in a way that I, I never will, right? And so she will understand her audience, the market, and where we want to position ourselves. And what's unique about uh, the cosmetic space is there's relatively low levels of uh, innovation. It's really driven by marketing and distribution. And so because of that, you can come in and work with a contract manufacturer and essentially put a dot on the spectrum of you know mass market versus you know, prestige, right? A more mm -hmm. premium product and you just build accordingly. Right. And so for us, we wanted to target kind of the, the upper, not quite luxury, but we wanted it to be attainable, a premium product. And we built and designed the product accordingly. And we started with a retail price and a target in mind. And from there, we basically, you know, pumped it into our models and, and we knew what sort of gross margin we wanted to target. And we just worked backwards from there. And so we always started with the retail price first, what we were looking to, to sell it for. And then ultimately that would dictate based on our gross margin goals and targets, that would dictate how much we would be willing to spend to produce that item. And we could use that information with our suppliers and basically give them a very specific answer that's gonna help guide them and help us make informed decisions on how we can get to that that target uh, cost to produce the item. But it always started with the retail uh, price that we wanted to enter the market with. I love pricing just because maybe on a Tuesday you would have picked a certain amount and on a Wednesday you would have picked a slightly different amount. I mean, there's just so much, it's such a blend of like art versus science where you do need to get an Excel and model out what are the, the conversions and revenue we can expect, what are my COGS, and really run it out that way. But then there's also the science aspect of, or the art aspect of it as well, which is what will people actually like, what's the market sentiment and how will we be received and how will we be received in the future? And so actually a question that I have on the pricing side as well is, as you thought of just BK beauty long-term, how important was the price point that you entered in? And then also, do you think going up or down market would have been easier when you decided on your initial price point? it's a balance, right? And so the higher price, at least for us, the way I, I view it, and this is a hypothetical answer, right? But if we were to come at a much more premium price, and let's just say the pro the product's the same, right? The product quality is, is constant here. And we were to come at, in at a higher price, I mean, it would be reasonable to assume that we would probably attract less sales, right? Higher AOV, but it's just a balancing act. And so for us, we were very fortunate because Lisa had six years of data that we could chew through. Basically, you know, she she worked with, you know, various affiliate programs to monetize her content on YouTube. And so we had a deep understanding of of what people were purchasing, you know, other brands that she was talking about, other products that she was talking about. We knew what that audience was interested in and what they were they were basically voting for with their their dollars, and so we we had a unique situation in that respect in that we could have a deep understanding to what the tolerance was there, and it wasn't you know we we definitely wanted to still be very attainable to the broader segments of of that market, but still come in and deliver a, a level of quality that uh, we want to kind of sustain ourselves on in the future. And so we've got another brave individual with Jono here. This has made my day, honestly. We haven't. This is like you're the you're the second individual who's come on. This is fantastic. Oh, I, I think so I won like a six pack from this too. So thank if you. My <laughs> girlfriend was here. She was like, "Of course, you would be the one to jump on." But uh, quick question for Paul. I'm on your site, looking at all your SKUs, and like, did you come out with? I'm assuming you didn't come out with all the brushes at once. And I'm not a like a makeup brush guide, but like I already have like paradox of choice when like I'm looking through. So how do you know when to bring out a new skew and all of that? Are you like feeding off of the customer a lot in that regard or how do you go about that? Yeah, great question. And this goes back to a little bit about what you're hinting at Casey in terms of kind of the opening play in terms of how you organize, you know, not only kind of the, the number of, of options you put in front of people, but how are you going to price it? 
And so I'm a big believer in reducing complexity as much as possible for as long as possible until you're taking that next step up, right? And so for us, out of the gate, we did not even sell single items for the first uh, Ooh, okay. first two weeks. It was yeah. actually just the bundles. And so there were three options well, that you could buy out of the gate, which increased our AOV. It really mm -hmm. unleashed a lot of pent-up demand that it made it so people had to be fully bought in and have some skin of the game to, to be the first to acquire and try the brushes. And so out of the gate, we had nine total brushes. The entire collection was one of the bundle so that you could choose from. Yeah. And yeah. then the other, two, there was basically three total options. One is like the full enchilada. The other were all face brushes or all eye brushes. And it wasn't until after our kind of pre-launch promotion that we started opening up singles, you know, people were able to purchase singles. And, how did you um, and so time to do that. So it was, uh, it was basically a 10 day kind of launch promotion. And, and that's, that's what we decided to kind of frame it as, as far as the rollout, uh, everyone was very receptive to it. We didn't get too much pushback and, okay. you know, we were able to then have another opportunity to have a touch point in, in conversation when we opened up the singles available for purchase. And then thereafter, we would we would uh, kind of fill in the additional products. Now we have six, 16 brushes total. But yeah, it really started with that initial nine, and we only sold it uh, in bundles out of the gate. I would add on top of that, if you look at our website, uh, what's interesting in terms of how we're selling, and we haven't quite got into the details on that yet, but it, it might be a good transition. The sale actually happens for us in our business on YouTube right? So yeah. the buyer or the, the fan, the audience, however you want to categorize that person, the makeup enthusiast, they're consuming content on YouTube, whether it's a, a video tutorial or they're actually, it's actually featuring and, and talking about the product itself, whether that be through Lisa's channel or someone else's channel that, that looks a lot like Lisa, right? And so that sale happens on YouTube. Our website, it's just the transaction. So people are already sold, they click through, and then they just, you know, it's a transactional uh, process from our website. And so if you look at our about page, like I'm neglecting it, I need to kind of put more time into it. But the reality is our Shopify e-commerce site, it's just transactional for the most part. So you're trying to get just as few clicks as possible to get them to the checkout. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, awesome. Jono. Thanks. If anybody else wants to come on stage, we can bring you on up. It makes that's my fantastic. job easy. I get to. I've been waiting what seventeen seventeen episodes now. This is fantastic. that's great. <laughs> we have one more person, another person on, but yes, agreed. So raise your hand. Nick will pull you on stage, um, and then you don't have to hear me. So from GF and GF, if you want to come on stage and ask questions, I'm going to go back to the other episode with Paul and Lisa first, and then we'll jump in here. So something that Paul mentioned the other episode was that they view the makeup brush as like a cast member in the video, which was interesting because anytime you're doing, and I'm not watching like, you know, many YouTube cosmetic DIY stuff, or as you can tell by me fumbling with my words, um, or maybe I'm trying to hide it, but um, it's the always have the makeup brush. And I think what you called out is, is Lisa's often not necessarily selling the product it just happens to be there and she's utilizing it and so she's not really and, and correct me if i'm wrong here but she's not selling the selling's kind of happening on its own or more in the subconscious and so because i'd love to dig into that because here's a question from from gf and he actually just writes out a lot of stuff here so he says me and my girlfriend currently also started a cosmetic brand she has 300,000 plus subscribers on youtube 250 on instagram 500,000 plus on tiktok so those are all some rather large numbers. So hats off yep. to you and your girlfriend. We only promoted via her because it was free advertising and then four influencer friends that promoted it for free. I'm sure this is really ringing the bell for you, Paul. The four of them have a reach of about 1.6 million followers total. Our cheapest shipping option is three, three pounds worldwide. We now have about 40 orders after a week and a half. I think we can do better. And so that's more of like a statement. There's no question here. Maybe if you want to talk through some of your learnings early on and how you guys approached it. And then GF, if, if you have, if you want to specify any questions or if you want to jump on stage, go for it. So I, I can definitely speak to that. And it maps directly to, you know, what we experienced. And so Lisa's channel is not quite that big, but 
What I can say is, and I'm not sure of the the actual content of of uh, GF, but what I what I can say for us in our experience, uh, Lisa's content, and we also have kind of a circle of other folks who are, are putting out similar videos, uh, makeup tutorials, but they're purely educational, it's, and so the the audience that is consuming them, they're learning. As they learn, they see what products are being used. There are also videos that are talking about the latest product, and it's more just kind of featuring, it's it's a product review, right? So it's a little less educational, but more of kind of a product review. And so it really depends on the content. I would say that authenticity is huge with the audience. And so we have experience with, you know, maybe a, a channel size that is 50,000 or below able to convert and and drive sales far greater than others who we have experience with that that maybe have closer to a million. And so audience size is is a good thing to watch and and that will continue to grow, but at the end of the day it's the connection and the engagement level of that audience and what we found is the folks that are are highly engaged, they're putting out valuable content that is not trying to sell but ultimately as you mentioned, Casey, the, the product is is still center stage. It ultimately leads to sales, but it starts with the authenticity and just providing content to that community. That's great. And so GF told us um, it's he's in the Netherlands. It's about 11 o'clock there and he's sitting in his underwear. So he's just going to write. And I think that we all can think that that is rather fair. So we've got a couple other questions on different channels that I think touch on exactly what you guys are doing, Paul. Would love to hear your take here. So here's from Mary Beth. She's a professional makeup artist, celebrity, and she sold her products on HSN or Home Shopping Network and QVC. Just wondering, how are you driving all these sales? Is it all from YouTube? And then would love to hear if you've discussed or evaluated HSN and and QVC. No, we haven't. I mean, 100% of our sales are coming online directly. YouTube being the the big driver, a little bit from Instagram, but I mean, the the lion's share, it's through YouTube. And so in terms of radical focus right now, we're focused pretty exclusively on on building that out and and helping that grow by getting it in front of other YouTubers' hands and and building not only non-transactional relationship with our customers, you know, a deeper relationship, but also with other influencers and YouTube YouTubers. So those folks that are um, in terms of HSN and going beyond and either strategic retail, it's something that will come later this or next year. Next year, we're going to be focused on strategic retail. But uh, Sorry, I'm laughing over here. Yeah, usually, usually the door's shut. I've got a uh, everybody can see my here's my oldest. <laughs> he's being a little bashful. So my my six year old, he's popping around. You want to you want to put your face on camera or no? No. All right. He's still in his yeah, and so kind of jealous. I see. I see Mary. I see Mary Beth uh, also followed up that uh, shopping networks are tough. Huge returns. And takes eight months to pay you, yeah. And so that that's probably not even something we would be able to entertain, even if the opportunity was in front of us. Again, for us, it's about radical focus. It's about doubling down on what's working, and then scaling that up as as far as we can go, and then looking for the next thing, which in in my head is going to be strategic retail, either through folks Sephora or Nordstrom. But that that'll come uh, next year. It's interesting when you're thinking through both margin and then cash flow. And because that's where we started the conversation. And then just like Mary Beth shared, yep. I mean, when it takes that long to receive the, the money back, I know yep. a lot of people that have sold in like Whole Foods and elsewhere and and you're paying so much up front and then kind of crossing your fingers that they can sell on your behalf. And so it depends on the direction you want to take the business and how big you want to go. And so it's just interesting, the pros and cons. And so here's another question in another channel to think through this is from Robin. How important is using affiliate marketing for BK? versus Lisa being an affiliate for promoting other brands? Is affiliate marketing worth it uh, with the Big Ten, beauty blogs, and magazines? Can you get PR without doing affiliate marketing with Vogue, Allure, Pop Sugar, and others? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in affiliate marketing. We're, we're currently on ShareASale, which is kind of the platform. But, but the bigger thing that we were dialing into was ShareASale was something... So ShareASale is basically the affiliate platform, like the, the major network. There's other ones like Commission Junction and a a few other options that you can choose from. But ultimately, we wanted to tap into a sub-affiliate network. In our case, it was reward style, 
reward style basically has a cap, you know, captive audience of, of beauty influencers, fashion influencers, and it's basically the, the space that Lisa operated in. And so what was unique for us is we had the insights to really deeply understand the mindset of those influencers. And for us, it wasn't to get in publications. That wasn't our, our drive or to get PR. It was to get, you know, essentially the PR equivalent of, of getting in, into a YouTuber's uh, hands and have them talk about our product to their audience. And so for us, an affiliate program was was something we wanted to stand up pretty quickly. Within the first three months, we, we stood it up. And, you know, at the end of the day, the motivation for us was to make it as easy as possible to help fund the businesses of all those YouTubers uh, because that's how they they make their living. And for us, we're not paying for featured products to be, you know, talked about. It's everything's kind of passed through through the affiliate program. So it's stuff is selling, commissions are paid out. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm definitely a huge believer, at least for our strategy, it mapped pretty well. There's a lot more we could be doing with affiliate marketing, but again, from a radical focus standpoint, it, it just served a single purpose for us. And that was our driving motivation to get that program in place. Well, speaking of radical focus, I love too on how, you know, whether we're chatting here or we're just chatting on the phone or in person is the way that you also refer to your partners in the space where you're helping support their, you know, the fellow YouTubers and you're helping you know, build a long-term relationship with them and you're helping support them and helping educate them and how they can involve their businesses as well. This isn't like a transactional relationship. I think when people think of affiliate marketing, it's typically like you do this for me and I give you a dollar or X right. dollars, but it's, it's about a lot more than that. And yep. it's, and it's really building community and that's, that's how you're going to build good will with them for the long term. And so here's a couple of good questions from Sean. I'd love to jump in on. So how do you decide that a product no longer has a, a longer useful life than a consumable in the beauty space? So are you doing something like refresh your brush every X months, like with a reorder? How are you approaching that yeah. versus some like subscription type stuff? Yeah. So the refresh doesn't really come into play for us, at least the way we're handling things uh, for in terms of a consumable, you know, once we get into colored cosmetics, I mean, those are essentially consumable products that need to be replenished or, in our category, it's more like, what's the next thing that we're going to release? It's going to be the next cool thing to play with. So by the end of this year, we're going to be releasing an eyeshadow palette, right? The first of many to come. Unless a customer like truly like just wants to continue to purchase that, I would see the, the natural tendency would be purchase that. And then BK Beauty just launched another one later that the, the next year. And I'm going to pick that up too. From the brushes, it's not something we've gotten into yet, but cleaning fluids, because basically brush maintenance, you have to, you know, every two weeks, uh, there's kind of a quick dry little formula that you can use. It's something we've looked at picking up. It would be an easy sell. But again, for us, those MOQs, since we're basically funding everything ourselves with cash flows, we haven't got into that yet because it would be a very big outlay out of the gate. And so eventually for the brushes, we are going to be rolling out kits to help wash the brushes and keep them clean. And, and those would be definitely consumable. So this question kind of ties in with that and pretty much everything that you do. And so his question is, how are you using the data you are acquiring? And so I think it's fascinating what you can get from Shopify, which is where you're selling, what you can get from YouTube, how you can combine those together, we can get from Google Analytics. I don't know if you're tracking like customer logs. There's just so much interesting data there. And so as you feed that into, you know, your your radical focus, what numbers do you look at and maybe what demographic data or other data that you can uh, ingest and how are you utilizing that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I start every morning off with when I wake up and roll out of bed, it used to be checking my email, but something has gotten more prioritized. And that is to look, uh, you know, I basically have this thing on my phone where I'll click it and it'll pull up kind of a, a search on YouTube for anyone who's talking about us. Like, you know, within today, the last 24 hours, what new videos have come out that are featuring BK Beauty? And so what I, I want to see is kind of a consistency of those who we're developing relationships with continue to talk about the products, right? And obviously more new people. And so that's definitely something I watch for, whether it's kind of a key, key uh, KPI or, or not, it, it's something I look for and I'm able to take action off of. And so 
if there's someone, a new YouTuber who's talking about our brushes that we didn't necessarily have a relationship with before, I saw that video very quickly within minutes of them dropping the video, we'll be reaching out and be like, hey, thanks so much. We'll look them up in Shopify and see that they purchased maybe a, a small segment of our, our offerings. And then very quickly, we'll, we'll reach out and say, hey, we're going to send you the rest. Thanks so much for your support. Love your video and start developing this relationship. You know, one tool that we've been using quite a bit is developing custom discount codes for, for YouTubers that, you know, start to have that relationship. And that's really kind of the step one of the relationship. And so it's, it's kind of a, a 10% off. It would be the, the equivalent of, you know, most e-commerce sites, when you hit them, there'll be a little pop-up says, Hey, give me your email address. And we'll send you, you know, 10, 15% off whatever it is for your first purchase. For us, our strategy was, hey, let's let's just kind of have a dedicated 10% off and then have custom branded codes for each of these people to use in their description. And what we find is they actually, even if BK brushes are not talked about in the video, they'll always have that code in the description box below. And it's kind of an evergreen down there. You know, the code itself, it helps and serves a YouTuber. But beyond that, you know, we're able to track through other means as well, but it gives us an indication of, okay, how, how often are our buyers using which code? And then if you map back from our affiliate program, we're able to track uh, sales by YouTuber for the most part. It gets a little murky when we're looking at just kind of the, the sub-affiliate within that reward style because they kind of mask it a bit. It's a bit of a black box. But those who have a direct relationship with us from the affiliate side, we get to see you know, how much sales they're driving. And ultimately what we act on, and Casey, I've, I've talked to you about this, but we're actually co-developing a line of products with one of, of those basically friends of, of, of the business kind of thing, another YouTuber out there. And watching what she is able to do in terms of driving sales has really provided us the confidence to go in and kind of have baby steps and kind of increasing the engagement of that relationship over time and getting to the point where we're going to be co-developing a product with her. And we have a good understanding of how much sales she's able to drive, which then will inform, you know, how much inventory we're going to invest in out of the gate. And so, yeah, data is huge. Looking at that, it really informs a lot of this, the, the actions that we take. I love it. And something that you touch on there also is, you know, you have these grand visions of where the business can go, but that doesn't happen overnight. And so it's, you know, forcing yourself to take these like methodical steps where, you know, you work with that YouTuber to promote the products that you guys have today. And then based on how things go and the relationship you have with him or her, then you can start working on something that's more collaborative and you continue to, you know, evolve that it's just it's just a day-by-day step-by-step process so you know right. just, just love hearing about that and then you just being so open with sharing this so let's see a couple more questions here um so bob appreciate the kind words also with here is you know can, can we drive connections so gf sounds like you guys have some great reach maybe you know if, if we'll, we'll see what paul's open for but you know you guys can connect it sounds like you guys are doing something very similar trade notes and maybe there's some co-promotion there. Mary Beth, she dropped in her her email as well. So Paul, we can share everything with you and it's in the chat. So really appreciate it. You guys pe- keep coming up with the ideas here. And then a question here from, from Robin, are you using a social listening platform to get this information or are you just using, you know, a, a, a default YouTube search function? We're not using kind of a, a paid platform. What we're using now is just kind of very at least for us, they just map to exactly what I want to get out of it. Like, what questions do I have? I'm going to create a little custom script that's going to enable me to do it. And ultimately, I would see it as a valuable uh, activity to even kind of further that along and develop something internally that is just looking for these, these little nuggets of information out there that are relevant and actionable to me. I can't think of a platform that would just serve up exactly what what I'm hoping to see without a great deal of of fine tuning in terms of if if they're able to allow me to customize it to that certain extent. But there's very specific things I'm looking for, and I'm not interested in looking at at anything other than that, if that makes sense. And so Mm -hmm. my answer is no, we're not using anything outside of uh, just the publicly available access because a lot lot of the stuff is just public in and of itself. That's great. And I, I think that's just a good thing to reiterate too, is I think a lot of times people will, and I'm not saying that she was asking for, you know, some magical solution to everything, but 
people are often like, well, what's the tool that will help solve all the world's issues? And sometimes it's just a good old YouTube or Google search uh, to get that information. And then you just run through that every day. And then you can start, depending on the value you get from that, you can evolve that over time. So here's a question from uh, Medell, which is how much do you pay a YouTuber on average? And, you know, of course that will vary. And so maybe if you can just kind of share anything that you can on how you even approach these commercial terms with YouTubers or influencers in general. Yeah, again, our motivation, it's not transactional. And as soon as something comes into play that is going to kind of, you know, taint the relationship with some level of transaction, I think that's kind of a a bad territory for us. And that's just the way that we're handling things. There's different ways to do it. But I'll, I'll give you some some concrete examples. So our affiliate program, I mean, that is transactional in itself, but we we don't push it towards that. It's basically something that it, it's a managed program that allows us to offer compensation to those who are supporting us over time, right? That's that's it. And so that's 15% is basically what we set it at. You can set it however you see fit. But for us, beyond the affiliate program, I mean, before COVID hit, we we had events planned. We had basically to to bring all all those YouTubers together to, you know, have a, a vacation or have like a learning session to come together and really be that sphere that that brings people together. Because I'll tell you right now, based on what I've seen with Lisa, she kind of scaled up her operations, what she does on that front. And then the the perspective I have of now working with new YouTubers who, you know, are are basically outside of our basically new to us, right? YouTubers over over the course of their time, they they have to figure things out for themselves. Many of the good ones just start from a passion. There's a point in time where they they've been doing it for probably years. For for Lisa, it was about four years. And then she realized she could start monetizing it. And she's like, wow, how do I do that? And so she made relationships and friendships with other YouTubers out there that were maybe a little bigger and just asked tons of questions. And now there's maybe like a half dozen plus YouTubers, they're on just a, a text chain, you know, nonstop, right? And so I think that is happening all over the place. And so for us, we obviously started and GF, it sounds like similar situation for you guys as well, but we had that kind of hub and spoke, you know, sandbox out of the gate that really supported our launch and was incredible. But ultimately our goal is to find new pockets to start penetrating into. And again, when I say penetrating, not from a transactional sense, but in an effort to come in, help them grow their business and help support what they they love to do uh, because they're they're very good at it. And then, yeah, and so that's through, we, we send them gifts. End of last year is actually kind of, Lisa wanted to send out some Louis Vuitton handbag, little bag, like really nice gifts. And it's just kind of tokens of like, hey, like you're really special to us. Thank you so much for the support. We want to help support you as well. And, you know, here's a gift. Maybe we can have you out to an event and we can just spend quality time together. So that's that's our approach. Right. And yeah, just going above and beyond. So, oh, here we go. GF. So you can also call me uh, Jelano if I pronounce that right. So I appreciate that. So, so something that you mentioned and it ties into another question we have, and it's almost top of the hour. So maybe we can wrap up here and then end with the question we always do. But you mentioned how... Lisa started on YouTube and then it was, okay, how can I maybe monetize YouTube? And then it was monetizing YouTube. And then it was you, you guys taking the leap into launching your own store. And so a question we have from, from James, which is what doubts did you have when taking on your first inventory? I know it's a bit nerve wracking to have thousands, to now have thousands of brushes that you need to move. We're very worried you would not be able to get rid of that initial stock. And so I think if we zoom out a little bit from that question, it's the, there's a book that I that I love and think about a lot. It's Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. And he really talks about resistance and punching resistance in the face every single day, basically that inner voice telling you you can't do it. And so from taking that leap from, from you know, zero to one and launching your store, how did you guys, I guess, cover that chasm or make that leap? Yeah, step by step. The way that I view it and I mapped out or we mapped out together, just what is the incremental next little step? up right and so whether that's like for example i I talked about our launch and how we decided to do you know only three SKUs, right that made up the nine brushes but just to reduce complexity what is the the one incremental next step that we can take to get to the next point right what does that look like 
And so when you look at it like that and you map it out over the course of 12 to 18 months and you understand like where you want to go and then you identify what are the next incremental steps up, each one of those steps is pretty easy relative to the one that you just took, right? And so for us, placing inventory bets now, we're getting to the point where it's relatively large. 12 months ago, we would it would be like crazy, crazy talk. Like that would be crazy to invest in it, but we have a level of confidence and so relative to our last PO we sent, it's it's just a next step up. Now we have kind of a track record of understanding that, okay, yeah, we can do this. We got this. And now we can start, again, going back to this bet, you know, betting analogy, like we can place that next bet, we can take that next step, but we'll, we're never going to kind of get over our, our, our skis, so to speak. It's all calculated, it's all conservative, but it is all incrementally that next one step up. Perfect. And maybe that'll be part of your answer to my last question. So before we get there, everybody who joined from you know many different countries and continents, really appreciate you taking the time. Nick dropped in our survey. So if you want to give us any insights there, thank you everybody for joining us, Paul, for coming on for a second time. Um, as always, I learned a bunch and just you just being so open and honest with the questions and just was so glad that everybody chimed in with so many questions. To close it out, Number one piece of advice for for everybody. Yeah, you caught me caught me off guard with that question last time, but I, I came <laughs> a little more prepared. And you know, to, to close out, thank thank you so much for having me again. I, I really enjoyed it. It's great questions uh, coming in. This has been great. I love love talking about it and sharing our journey and helping others with you know what we've learned along the way. We still have a long long way to go, but we, we've taken those first couple steps. One piece of advice goes back to some of the themes of radical focus that I sprinkled in throughout uh, this conversation. For us, we started resource constrained, both in terms of what we're putting in, in terms of our finance, self-financing this operation, and then our, our, our resource constraints of our attention and where we focus our time. And so I'm a big believer in operating in an environment where you're forcing yourself through constraints. And so I think if, if we would have taken on a, a, a big check out of the gate, gotten funding, like it would reduce our reliance and need to radically focus. And so for us, it's just radically focus. There's a lot of people doing a lot of different things, but for us, we're focused on these things. Great. Great way to end it. I know Steve Jobs has talked about constraints leading to more creativity. And so, you know, don't necessarily always wish for everything on day one. And then see Robin here, a beautiful constraint by Adam Morgan and Mark Barden. So there we go. People chiming in. Really appreciate it. Appreciate everybody's insights in the chats as well. So as always, we'll be here next Wednesday, 3 o'clock Eastern. Hope to see you all chiming in there. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.